Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part one of a two-part series, Who Murdered FDR? In part one, the rise of Roosevelt and the betrayal to get America into the war. I think that Pearl Harbor was a sacrificial lamb to get the American people sold on the war, and I know how that sounds, and I'm sorry if it offends anyone. I think what happened was terrible, but I think that it was necessary at the time for us to do or millions and millions of people would have died. This podcast is supported by The Horrible Movie Podcast. The Horrible Movie Podcast is a weekly show hosted by Jack Altermat. Jack invites a guest who brings a horrible theater-released movie to dissect. Jack and his guests take you through the highs and lows of the movie and what makes it horrible. New movies, older movies, cult classics, or box office busts. No movie is spared or safe from the Horrible Movie Podcast. It's a fun show with clean language, and it's available through Spreaker.com, Apple Podcasts, StudioDNA.media, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to your Monday. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president of the United States, the longest serving president, 13 years. He would have served 16 years had he not died in 1945. After FDR came the 22nd Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which limited presidents to two terms. FDR was also, of course, president during the Great Depression, instituted the still controversial New Deal, which gave him extraordinary powers and earned him the love and support of the underclass and trade unionists and the hatred of many on Wall Street. He also confiscated gold, and some say was a little too cozy with Joseph Stalin, Uncle Joe. And of course, he was also largely confined to a wheelchair after being stricken with polio in the early 1920s. It's believed he was actually stricken by the disease while visiting Canada. Roosevelt died April 12, 1945, just 11 weeks into his fourth term. He was at his beloved retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia. Officially, he was felled by a brain aneurysm. But my next guest has uncovered some amazing information deep in the archives under more than 70 years of dust. Steve Ubaney is an American suspense author who reinvestigates the deaths of famous people using newly discovered facts that debunk historical claims. His books deduce that some of history's most famous deaths were actually murders. He's the author of Who Murdered FDR? The True Story They Don't Want You to Know. Steve Ubaney, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing well, how are you? Very well. Who murdered FDR, the true story that they don't want you to know? In the opening chapter, you don't paint a very flattering portrait uh, of the president. And you, one of the first lines that you come out with is, he was a communist. That's a shock to some people, perhaps. Yeah, it, uh, it's amazing how history reveals things as we look back. 
in writing this book, I went to Hyde Park, New York, of course, which is where he was born and, and raised and went through his museum. And upstairs in that museum is his National Archives. And if you haven't gone, you got, you got to make this a destination stop on your on a summer vacation or something because they've just they've poured a ton of money into this place. And it's, re it's really fascinating. It's uh, I think they poured something like they get a government grant for $40 million or something. And it's you can walk through the time period and you know, walk through the period specific things of what it was like at the time. So you could go down and you could you could sit at a kitchen table, period specific, of course, and press a button and hear a fireside chat. It was really interesting. But anyway, um, upstairs at the National Archives is, and they're, they're pictured in my book, folder after folder of him with um, uh, communists, uh, you know, communist operatives, uh, of course, there were communist operatives in our government at the time. And there's a three-drawer filing cabinet of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, FBI file and her interminglings with communists. So, um, you know, they were, they were uh, quite uh, socialist, communist-friendly. And I have to kind of earmark that for a second because when I say that, you know, you have to remember that this is the era of the Waltons. And they didn't. They knew nothing about evil empires. They knew nothing about uh, you know bloodbaths and Stalin and you know they didn't know anything about power struggles for the globe. They really thought that they had found a new system of government that was devoid of the pitfall, the rise and fall of capitalism, where it was a cradle to grave system, and everyone was taken care of unconditionally. So uh, you know it was it was very easy to fall into that train of thought at the time period and most academics were because this was the new this was the new hip thing it was the up and coming thing so right although his cousin teddy roosevelt certainly wasn't the furthest thing from a communist he was a dyed in the wool republican a conservative uh and yet his his younger cousin um, uh, Franklin not so much swung far to the left but but Franklin Roosevelt as you point out really sort of learned at the knee of of um, Woodrow Wilson and um, and Colonel House now Colonel, uh, Woodrow Wilson you certainly uh, don't shy away from going after him because not only was he a communist I mean uh, one could argue uh, treasonous I mean he he did not like the American system at all no, he absolutely hated it, and I have no affection for Woodrow Wilson, and I'm not going to shy from that one. I think that FDR at least had a germ seed of caring about people. The problem with FDR is that he was so far, he was a spoiled rich kid, knew nothing about suffering or anyone suffering, and you know he, he was out of touch with the common person or anything about that. And Woodrow, so I ha he did a lot of people a lot of good, especially when you know in the throw in the throes of uh, of the depression and coming out of the depression. The depression. So you know I have to kind of give him a pass. I think he had good intentions. Woodrow Wilson did not have good intentions. Well, now of course we know. I mean, obviously his father was a Confederate soldier, slave owner, and and um, Woodrow Wilson was certainly an avowed racist. Uh, um, oh, yeah. I, I believe it was he. You know, he screened um, the birth of a nation, uh, the D.W. Griffith um, uh, a film, which is certainly a sort of a celebration of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so yes, Woodrow Wilson, not a nice fellow, but 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 talk to me about his view of 
uh, the American system and how he wanted to 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 really increase the the power of the president, uh, and then and then also uh, the influence of Colonel Tom House. Well. Um Woodrow Wilson hated the American system. He hated the three branches of government. He wanted, he favored the parliamentary system, which is two branches of government, where the judicial and the legislative branches, I'm sorry, strike that, where the executive and the legislative branches are combined, and then, of course, the last one being the judicial branch. So he wanted more power, and the reason he wanted more power, and the reason he hated the three branches of systems of checks and government that we have in America, the reason he hated that is because he was trying very, very hard to follow the Communist Manifesto. Again, here we are back with communism again, which was written by Ingalls in 1879, I think. I'm not exactly sure when it was written, but the academics of the day um, thought that was the up-and-coming thing. So there were 10 planks in the Communist Manifesto to transform a free society to a, um, a socialist society and then eventually a communist society. And he went after that with, uh, with vigor. Um, he started a progressive and very uh, graduated income tax because wealth doesn't belong in the Communist Manifesto. Um, he started to abolish all rights of inheritance. And um, he started the Federal Reserve. So, right, and and who who is this Svengali, Colonel Tom House? Um, Colonel House was I don't you know I can't remember exactly how they got hooked up, but um, Colonel House became the best friend of Woodrow Wilson, and it escapes me at the moment. I'm sure it's in my book, but I haven't read my book in a while. Sorry, um, how they became acquainted. And Colonel House was a communist, and he was sent to the United States to infiltrate him and to twist his mind around. Did a wonderful job of it. And he became his alter ego. And they got to be such good friends that they went everywhere together. And it, got to, it started being said that they were, although incorrectly, a homosexual couple because they, were, they, were, they went everywhere and did everything together. And uh, later on, it would be revealed that there were multiple publications written by, uh, by Colonel House that were right in line with, uh, with the uh, Communist Manifesto. And he published under assumed names. But, of course, decades later, they blew the lid off exactly who it was. So um, they, were, uh, they were definitely two peas in a pod. They were definitely communists. And they were hell-bent on transforming America from a free capitalist society into a socialist and eventual communist society. I mentioned so, Colonel Tom House. It's actually Colonel Edward House. I'm thinking about Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Colonel, it's funny. Those two books both have colonels in them, don't yes, they? Yes, Colonel Edward House. Uh, and and then, uh, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson is is felled by a, a serious stroke, and the country, unbeknownst to, the, to everyone, is being essentially run by his wife, the First Lady Edith. Yeah, and you know it should have been it should have been the vice president right then, right then and there. It should have gone right through the Presidential Succession Act. It should have gone if he became incapacitated, he or any president. It should go to the next in, in line. But you know who is he to follow the Constitution at all? So um, here we have him him dodging public view, incapacitated, and his wife basically you know using his hand to sign documents. Um, towards the closing days of, of the administration. So all of this is the precursor to FDR, who, matter of fact, uh, Colonel House 
um, urged Woodrow Wilson to make uh, FDR Assistant Secretary of the Navy because he knew that they ran in the same line. He knew that FDR was a communist long before anybody else knew. So he was being groomed. Absolutely. He was being groomed. And, um, you know, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy for quite a few years and seemed to excel at that. And then, of course, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was that Roosevelt name. He died uh, after, but well, he was in office forever, it seems like. Eight years. Yeah, he, I think he, he uh, two, two terms he served. And he was he was so abundantly popular that, you know, his the last name Roosevelt took on mythical proportions almost. So, you know, it was the perfect storm of the right ideal of the day um, hidden, although it's it's the right idea for the insiders who wanted to promote someone of the day. The right last name and a ton of money behind him. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes sometimes it takes quite an array of things to make someone. Um, uh, an influential president politics. Particularly, as you point out, because at that time, uh, and again, he's from Hyde Park, New York is a red state. It's a Republican uh, uh, bastion at this time. So for a a Democrat uh, to, to run successfully first for the New York Senate and then later to become governor, that was quite a tall order. But as you say, that name, um, and his affiliation with his cousin Teddy Roosevelt, even though he was with the wrong party, that was enough to get him uh, into into office, and his political career was launched. Yeah, and some some things, sometimes there are certain times in history, in every country's history, when last names and parties just don't matter. You know, in this last election in 2016 with Trump, we saw an awful lot of Democrats who were having problems making it around the dinner table with the mortgage crossing party lines and voting for someone talking about jobs. So sometimes, you know, last names are more important than parties. And I think this was the vanguard of those cases. And then to sort of to sort of secure the the uh, the legacy, he marries his cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was born a Roosevelt and she marries a Roosevelt. Yeah, this is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, this was really something. I took the tour, again, at Hyde Park at the Roosevelt Mansion. And some of the pictures in the book I actually took, um, you know, on my own because I wanted to get pictures of specific things. So um, anyway, I took a tour and the tour guide said, and I couldn't believe this came out of his mouth. It just cracked me up. He said that he firmly believes that he married a Roosevelt for more recognition with Teddy Roosevelt and the other side of the family. So here she is. She's born or Eleanor Roosevelt's born a Roosevelt, married a Roosevelt, died a Roosevelt. So this is a person who never had to change her monogram in her entire life. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, it was, uh, it was, of course, it was commonly done. I know this sounds crazy by today's standards, but even in Gone with the Wind, the, the Wilkeses always married their cousins. This was commonly done because they wanted to keep a true bloodline. Right, right. I mean, there may have been that reason as well, but it's, it's awfully suspicious to not only me, but some of, the, some of the tour guides at the Roosevelt Mansion that got a kick out of that one. Now, you, you, uh, you, you, you talk about FTR not being able to relate to anyone born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, and yet, maybe the the thing that gave him some vestige of humanity was contracting polio. Yeah, he uh, 
he was uh, a rich little snot, actually, if you want the truth. I mean, through everything that I've read and learned in studies, he was actually not a very nice little person um, when he was raised. And, of course, he went off to all the finest colleges. And he was, you know, I mean, if I don't know if you've ever been to Hyde Park, but the Roosevelt's and the Vanderbilt's are on the same plot of land about maybe, maybe a little quarter mile away from each other. So, I mean, you're dealing with the super rich of the super rich. So he knew nothing about the common person and really didn't care. He lived an isolated little padded existence and, you know, good for him. I mean, I wish I could, but I can't. Um, I'm living this life. Sorry. So um, he really had no interest in knowing or caring about anyone who was uh, sick or suffering or common. Um, I don't think he was a nasty person. I think he was a nice guy, but I don't think it really, it, it didn't really, it wasn't part of his world and he didn't really care if it was or not. So, you know, or, you know, after his college days, he incredibly starts getting infantile paralysis or polio. I think that there's two different names for the same thing, although I'm not a doctor. Um, and he started losing um, control or and or use of his arms and his legs. And um, this is where my admiration for at this point, this is where my admiration for FDR really took off, because here's a guy sitting in his bed who can move nothing from the neck down. And he works himself. He had bars installed over his bed so he could learn to use his arms. And he learned to regain the use of his arms. Of course, he had the best doctors in the world flown in to see if he could get him back to health. And what this person did out of sheer will is incredible. He actually had parallel bars installed right in the front of the of the mansion the roosevelt mansion and he used to go out when he could dragging his legs behind him mind you and he would do a workout regimen with his arms and he was trying to get his the use of his legs back which was really incredible he would drag and if you haven't been there this wouldn't make sense to you but he would walk quote unquote but he wasn't walking at all he would literally drag himself behind his legs behind him from his uh, his the his front door all the way to the uh, I believe it's route I believe it's route nine um, and back and this is probably a mile and a half and he did this every day to try and get use back in his legs and of course he was unsuccessful but I mean the sure will that this person had um, you know it was, it was just it was just amazing right he just not going to be defeated by this and you know he. Uh, I, I don't know how he was so close to death. I don't know how he wasn't in an iron lung. I mean, I was, I'm just amazed that through my research that uh, he was able to survive it. I mean, it was, it was near fatal for him. So and, kudos to him for coming back the way he did. And, and during this, this time uh, where he was incapacitated, this is during a time when people thought that if you had a physical disability, you also had a mental disability. So he had to keep this hidden uh, if, he was, if he ever had any political aspirations. Yeah, absolutely true. He, um, people were, you know, they thought differently back then. Again, we were a more, we're getting less and less naive with every generation. And that generation was a little naive. And they thought that if there was something wrong with you physically, that you had to be you know, mentally compromised or something. So um, he had to really prove it to, uh, to a lot of people. And of course, the press was very cooperative. Um, they hid his leg braces all the time in photos. 
Um, and oftentimes they let him pick the photos that he wanted to go to press. You know, they were very, um, you know, they were very helpful in that. Hmm, it sounds familiar. Yeah, how interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, in, and, you know, it's, it's really something. Um, he wanted, he was striving. He was striving so hard to make his point that he was fit. Um, he did a press release in Albany in which he had a doctor there, E.W. Beckworth, and he was a medical director of Equital Life Assurance Society. And they announced that he was so fit that they insured his life for $560,000. So, and I mean, obviously the doctor was well paid off, but he was, he was, they were going to such extraordinarily lengths, extraordinary lengths, uh, excuse me, to, to get this point across that he was as healthy as a bear when in fact, you know, he, he definitely wasn't. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Steve Ubaney, the author of Who Murdered FDR, is here. Let's move to his uh, election in 1932 and uh, the New Deal. Obviously, the United States is in the throes of uh, a deep depression. Uh, it's funny, though, because as you point out in the book, his campaign pledge for the New Deal was something entirely different. Uh, I mean, he was talking about reducing government spending. Uh, what was what was that New Deal designed? What, what was it initially? Well, initially it was supposed to be a pro-business uh, piece of legislation where he would be, um, you know, reducing taxes and reducing red tape and and everything possible to make um, to make business thrive, so we could get you know uh, jobs and economy back in the uh, in the in the in the government in the United States economy because it was sorely lacking at the time. So that was the original New Deal. And of course what we what we got was something, you know, entirely entirely different. I don't know if um uh, there's been some historians who say that we were actually duped. But, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, it's it's an interesting part. It's one of those interesting parts of history, isn't it? <laughs> well, yes, but the, the, the actual New Deal that was implemented, was this not designed by the, the Communist Party of the United States? Absolutely. Um, the CPSU, the Communist Party of the United States, had its inception in 1919. And, of course, they had their operatives and labor unions and, uh, you know, all, all over the place. Every place where there was a union, including Hollywood, mind you, they were, they had operatives either willingly or unwillingly involved in the same way that Colonel House was involved with Woodrow Wilson. So the he met with... Um, uh, Harry Hopkins, who was one of the people who was very involved with the CPSU uh, as, as an organizational person, and they came up with uh, much legislation that they wanted. And I have a, a, a list here of what actually came down here in the New Deal in the first 100 days. It was the emergency. Basically, what he wanted to do was he wanted everyone to come to permission for him in the government to do anything. And, of course, total rule 
in uh, everyone basically on the same equal monetary playing field. And that's that's the battle cry of the socialists and the communists, actually. So the New Deal consisted of the Emergency Banking Act, the Government Economic the, the Government Economy Act, the Beer Wine Revenue Act, the creation of the Citizen Conservation Corp, the abandonment of the gold standard. Of course, we can't have gold because that's wealth. We can't do that. The Agricultural Agricultural Adjustment Act, the Emergency Farm Mortgage Act, Tennessee Valley Authority Act, the Securities Act, the Gold Payment Clause, the homeowner the Homeowners Loan Act, the Glass Siegel Banking Act, the Industrial Recovery Act, the Railroad Transportation Act, and finally the Farm Credit Act. So anything basically that was in charge of making commerce, feeding people or having anything to do with with money he was in control of he yeah basically control- your entire existence controlled yes. by FDR absolutely absolutely right if you worked if you ate if you used the utility it was because he allowed it and as you as you point out in who murdered FDR the same could have been said for Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union well that was absolutely correct and that was done by that's no accident <laughs> That's that's no accident, actually. Um, how communism got so enthralled, or in the United States, some was was some was above board, some was less transparent. Joseph Stalin actually sent invitations to the CPSU to labor union leaders and uh, directors in Hollywood to come to the Soviet Union and see how wonderfully everything worked. And then, of course, they were taken to a model town, which didn't function, and they were given a head full of false propaganda, and they were treated like kings for a week or two weeks or whatever it was. And then they were sent back with propaganda and information and booklets and packets, how you can transform your failing society during the Great Depression into this wonderful society where there's no strife and everyone is cared for in a cradle-to-grave system. So this worked exceedingly well, and some of the some of the people who were around FDR, who he knew about, he was certainly communist friendly, and possibly some that he didn't know about uh, were all around him. Alger Hiss, for example, he was in the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. Donald Hiss was in the Department of State. Um, Nathan Witt, again, he was the Agricultural Administ- um, Agricultural Adjustment Administration, and the National Labor Relations Board. Victor Pirlo, Charles Kramer, George Silverman. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Harry Dexter White. He was in monetary research. He was in the Treasury Department. All of these, Ward Pigman, he was in the, <laughs> funny name, Ward Pigman. Um, he was in National Bureau of Standards and Public Welfare Committee. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. And basically, again, here we are. If it's in the agricultural sector, it's in the money sector, and it's in the uh, the labor sector. Charles Kramer was the manager of the Department of Labor. So again, he's trying to control all means of all means of obtaining wealth. Right, and doing it extraordinarily well, mind you. And uh, and and in the White House, they refer to the uh, the ruthless dictator of the Soviet Union as Uncle Joe. Yep, an interesting, uh, <laughs> a very interesting name for a guy who was pro- quite probably the most the most brutal person I think to ever walk the earth. I mean, to say that this guy was a megalomaniac uh, was, you know, 
<laughs> I just can't imagine anything to even uh, measure that up against. He was so much more than a megalomaniac that I, I just can't even begin to imagine anyone worse. Um, he killed millions and millions of his old people with no trial just because he had a suspicion they were against him. He murdered his wife. Um, uh, it's just, it's incredible. Um, it just, it, the, in my book does a great job of exposing, um, Stalin for exactly the hideous murdering monster that he was. Lenin's, uh, wife actually had Lenin's, Lenin's, uh, writings about Stalin and said Stalin, he was, Lenin was not a fan of Stalin. No, He's, no. He said that he's vulgar, he's too ruthless, he's not very bright. And what Stalin did, how he came to power, is he was able to memorize as much of Lenin's writings as possible. So whenever he debated someone, he went right back to the trough and it went over, you know, like uh, like wildfire. But Krovskaya, who was Lenin's wife, she knew exactly what he was. And if I'm not mistaken, he murdered her as well. He just murdered everyone who was in his path. The guy was just... Uh, He's really, he's, he's really something. He's one of these people that I, I researched at length, and just when I thought I got to the point where I couldn't find anything more that was bad about him, I found more. I mean, it just kept going and going and going. Right, just, right. We all know the episode of Trotsky in Mexico with the ice pick. Ouch. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. So I don't know how FDR thought that Stalin and him were going to be great friends, but, you know... Um, yeah, <laughs> it's really laughable when you look back at it, but it wasn't so funny at the time. So back to, to the New Deal. Why was it, how did it, I should say, how did it uh, dis or, or hurt the economy? We're told that the New Deal saved America, that it, you know, that it brought hope to millions who were in abject poverty and lifted them up. Uh, I mean, this is... This is a, a period, for example, when, when, he, when many African-Americans switched allegiance from the uh, Republican Party and started voting Democrat. All true. Um, but you have to remember who's writing those books. They're traditionally for academia, who was, uh, who was actually very left-leaning for CPUSA reasons. So, you know, he was, you know, academia was very, at the time... And they still may be. I don't know. I'm not an authority on it. But at the time, they were very communist friendly. So, of course, they're going to, to paint FDR in this light of being a savior. Now, that's not to suggest that the New Deal didn't do some good. Obviously, it did. I mean, everyone was on the government payroll. Uh, he gave hope to a lot of people who, you know, they could go out and, you know, work on national project, projects and build roads and bridges and feed their families. And, um, and so it did some good. Um, it did a lot of good, actually, in a lot of ways. The problem is, what they didn't know at the time that we know now is that it. The problem with that is eventually you run out of somebody else's money. That's right. Thank you, Lady Thatcher. <laughs> yeah, Martha Thatcher is that. That is her quote, isn't it? Yes, it's wonderful. That's the problem with socialism. Eventually, you run out of people's money. It's so it's, true. It's very true. So his enemies were all around him. So as he starts going, the first New Deal started to play out, and he really thought, because it had never been done before, he really thought, in this country, anyway, he really thought that, oh my God, you know, why, why isn't this working when it worked so well in the Soviet Union? We must need a second New Deal. And what Which, did that involve? 
Well, it was just furthering the same thing, and that came up in 1935, and it it got shot down. Um, you know, it didn't it didn't make it through the the House and the Senate. So he was really at a means to an end here. Okay, this program didn't work. I can't do more of it. I'm kind of coasting. The economy is really not doing. It's better, but it's certainly not doing what it should be doing. So he started to you know get it pick a fight basically and get us into the war because he knew that world war ii meant a lot of people at work um ships and tanks and production would go and maybe that would spark the economy so he did just about everything possible to pick a fight in uh, in world war ii well of course uh, during the uh, the early 30s hitler is just taking power we had the the reichstag fire in i believe it was 33 hitler consolidates his power uh, is given emergency powers and then, um, you know, eventually would uh, would annex uh, the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia and Austria uh, and then Poland. Now, um, America up until this point is not interested in, in jumping into the war. Is Stalin working behind the scenes to try and get Roosevelt into the war? At that time, probably not. We, he was telling, um, he being FDR, he was telling, um, you know, his people, we don't want any, any interest in, we don't have any interest in the war. We need to worry about our things at home. And all the while, he's saying one thing and thinking another. So Stalin, I don't think, was even on Roosevelt's radar. Of course, they were aware of each other. But I don't think that happened for a, night, for the, a couple of years. Um, I think he was... He was more in a, in a perplexed period, he's trying to figure out, of course, there's an election coming up, and he's trying to figure out how to go about doing that. There was an election coming up in 1936, which he tried to do the second New Deal to get back in office with. But he was so ingrained at that point in American history with the Roosevelt name and putting people to work and his files fireside chats through the radio. The radio was the... the, the um, new and hot thing of the day and and he was going directly to the people that you know he thought they were such a, he was such a member of the family i don't think he could have lost an election against anyone and the same thing and this is kind of a crazy comparison but trump is doing the same thing with twitter he's going directly to the people right right in the same way that fdr did with radio uh, just a different a different venue um, he's going directly to the people. So it's, it's really, it's an interesting thing how history tends to repeat itself, although different. Well, this, there's an interesting chapter here, and I don't know if you address the, the, uh, Governor Huey P. Long of, New, of Louisiana, who was sort of outdoing Roosevelt's New Deal uh, and, and um, was a real populist firebrand. Uh, who had, um, after serving uh, as governor, went on to to become a Louisiana uh, senator. I mean, uh, in Washington, and was was some were saying more popular than Roosevelt, and and was going to run against him for the Democratic ticket, uh, and may have won. Except, of course, he went down in a hail of gunfire. He had his political enemies, and some think Roosevelt may have had something to do with that. You know, it's entirely possible if. If that is the case, I didn't find. I don't think you're going to find a smoking gun in that case, and I didn't find any. And trust me, I looked. Um, I would, I would have, uh, I would have loved to have found something, but I was unable to. But it, you know what? It wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> really, wouldn't surprise me at all. So, just before we we wrap up uh, part one of our two part series on who murdered FDR, let me ask you then 
uh, obviously, the United States entered the war uh, on December 7th, 1941, with the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor, and the age-old debate uh, as to whether uh, Roosevelt uh, let it happen, made it happen, or was simply glad it happened. Where do you weigh in on this, Stephen? I think beyond question, he knew it was going to happen. I knew it was a matter of time. That's why all the all the um, all the aircraft carriers were out of the out of the harbor. They were called away a day or two before. I they, they, we had already we had already broken the Japanese code. They knew what was going on, and the reason they knew is because again, again, um, as I say, we had to get into World War II because. FDR was out of answers, and he knew that that meant a lot going on. So we got into um, the Lend-Lease program um, with the Brits. He got into uh, he realized that Germany was a food debtor nation. In other words, they don't make enough food to feed themselves. So it was his idea to blockade Germany. So Hitler had a decision to make. Um, you know, do I feed my soldiers or feed my prisoners? Which is why we see all these emaciated pictures of the people in the concentration camps because they were starving. They were they were all starving, and of course he picked a fight there, and he also picked a fight with the Japanese. The Japanese, they didn't want any part of a war with us. They were trying to negotiate us and negotiate us and negotiate with us. They we wanted no part of it. Now Japan is interesting because Japan is an oil debtor nation. They don't have we were their spigot. We were their oil supply. So here we have the government of the Japanese trying to negotiate and negotiate and negotiate, and FDR just not listening. Well, of course, political unrest happened. The new governor, uh, the new um, government took over in Japan. Now they're an empire. Now the empire of Japan is going to start getting oil. So they had to go island hopping to find the natural resources necessary to support themselves. So Roosevelt really had his hand in both of these. So he knew because, number one, we shut off the oil spigot to him. Number two, the change in the political climate in Japan at the time. And number three, um, we had already broken the Japanese code. We knew it was coming. There was no way we couldn't have known it was coming. So, But he did so, and I know this sounds terrible, this sounds awful to say, but he did so with the best intentions in mind. He had to get America into the war. Our spies in Germany knew that Hitler was very close to finishing his heavy water experiments and making the bomb. And with their V-2 rockets to carry the the, the nuclear bombs everywhere, they, they would have ruled the world. So we had to get in, we had to get in fast. So I think that Pearl Harbor was a sacrificial lamb to get the American people sold on the war. And I know how that sounds, and I'm sorry if it offends anyone. I think what happened was terrible, but I think that it was necessary at the time for us to do or millions and millions of people would have died. And I think I think he knew it. Why couldn't he have just gone to the American people with his fireside chat and, and said, Hitler is close to getting a nuclear bomb. We must enter the war now or all will be lost. Why did he have to sacrifice all of those people on the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor uh, in order to achieve that end? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, that would mean going back in his campaign promise. And number two, that would also reveal that we had spies in Germany who were real tight and real close to what was going on. So he couldn't reveal either one. 
So he was in a very, very difficult situation. And I and I got a feel for him. This is there's a couple times in my book when I slam him, and a couple times when I real really feel bad for him. And I do give him praise in a couple of ways. And you know, this one it was he had to get the American people on board somehow, it, because of the economy, because of the bomb that was the bombs that were coming, and just for multiple, multiple, multiple reasons. As a matter of fact. After my book came out, I saw um, an interview um, on the History Channel where they went through um, a different set of national archives, and they actually found letters that said they broke the Japanese code and they knew it was coming. So I was I was right on pace, but that didn't make it in the book because it came out after. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but yeah, he definitely knew what was going on. But with the with the amount the amount of people around him. Who wanted him dead was absolutely incredible. Uh, <laughs> it was it, it was incredible. But I think we'll save that for part two. And we will. Steve Ubaney, thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure, Richard. All right. Until part two. Thank you, sir. Okay. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. We knew that we had finally solved the case through his confession. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. The last thing he said to anybody was to Suge Knight, and it was on Dying Man. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow your mind. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Coming up next time, part two of Who Murdered FDR. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.